So uh, yeah, so we're on to part 10. I, d I didn't realize I should be using Roman numerals till about <clears throat> the seventh sermon. I'm like, duh, like this is the most obvious thing in the world. So part 10, this is a big Sunday, single letter X. Um, so I actually had a graphic, which can't be explained in words, which is why we got to start with, with this, that ties in Christmas and the theme of our sermon, which is perfect. And of course, this is... It's, it just says so many things, but then the more I thought about it, I'm like, this isn't accurate because it, it actually would just be normal Christian Orthodox teaching that everyone's on the naughty list. We're all sinners, right? So I thought maybe we needed to add something <laughs> like that. <laughs> maybe too much. It's all in good fun. I almost asked Wendell if this was inappropriate, but I thought... <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. It's great. All, all brothers and sisters in Christ. So <clears throat> I'm going to do a very short review of one through four before we move on and, and just a, a quick recap of what we talked about last week. In one through four, uh, Paul, of course, he's a, uh, he was a zealous Jewish Pharisee turned apostle. Uh, pretty much after a very meaningful greeting gets right to what he wants to teach the church. And we've gone over these two verses many, many times. The, uh, what he wants to teach, which is the salvation of everyone for who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. And that the, in this gospel, it's righteousness and it's by faith. And again, he just really drives home both of these points again and again throughout the, the whole book, but especially in the first four chapters that we've covered so far. He instructs them on faith, righteousness, and works, and how the law does or doesn't factor in, which is, of course, the differentiating principle between Jews and Gentiles. Chapter one uh, categorically insists that anyone who lacks special revelation uh, still has the irrefutable testimony of creation and their inner conscience around them. Uh, I was reading a story to Johnny this past week about a five-year-old Albert Einstein who was sick in bed and his, his dad bought him a compass. And, you know, he's twisting it, moving it, and shaking it. And no matter what, of course, the needle always points due north. And <clears throat> so he said, I can still remember, Einstein said, uh, much later, I can still remember that this experience made a deep and lasting impression on me. Something deeply hidden had to be behind all things. And uh, then Paul closes out the chapter with a very, very dark and depressing picture of what happens uh, in human behavior and the down downward spiral of those who reject this revelation. In chapter 2, um, Paul addresses those who are given the law, <clears throat> saying not only are they without excuse for their disobedience, but they're held all the more accountable because they should know better and they have the privilege of special revelation. And in both scenarios, <clears throat> men and women are not held guiltless when they close their hearts and mind to however God reveals himself to them. Paul reminds them of a future judgment that all people will be held impartially responsible for every action, whether a person has God's written word or they don't have it. <clears throat> and this is a judgment of deeds according to what men and women know. And all of this points to the fact that God is just. In chapter 3, Paul sort of course corrects, lest he be misunderstood, saying this doesn't mean that the Old Testament law serves no purpose and that there's no advantage being counted among the Jews. He says, in fact, there is much in every way they do have an advantage. They are better off, in a sense, even so. Just a few verses later, he insists that they are not any better, and finally, and ultimately, that Jews and Gentiles are alike under sin. So he says it is both the one thing and the other, and we said that was a, I mentioned last week, this is a very important theme 
in Paul's teachings that there's a, just a lot of complex teaching going on at, which can be hard to follow. So in this case, the blessings and advantages afforded to the Jews are real, but that doesn't mean that they're without sin any more than the Gentiles are. And then in verse 20, which is kind of where we bottom out here, uh, says, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by works of the law. Fortunately, this is immediately followed by the good news in verse 21, but now apart from the law, righteousness of God has been made known through Jesus Christ, again, to all who believe, which of course would be Jew and Gentile. So all who believe are justified, which means again, declared righteous by faith. And uh, Paul stated this was his goal to uh, sort of prove and evidence from the outset way, way back in chapter one, verse 17, as I showed you a second ago. To illustrate this as a gift, <clears throat> then, you know, free from any strings attached to any kind of works, he uses the example of Abraham in chapter four, who again, you may remember the phrase, believed God <clears throat> and it was credited to him as righteousness. So that's, that's a very, very quick overview of chapter four. And as I said, it's really important to keep in mind that Paul's teaching, again, have this both and dynamic in a lot of cases, sort of complexity. So the one thing I just want to touch on a little bit more is if works have become so removed from the picture of justification, um, then how, in what sense is that both this and that? Because of course that can be confusing. So to clarify, to be justified by faith alone, and so that would be a genuine trusting belief, that's what we mean by that, seems simple enough to understand if you think about it all by itself. The difficulty is when we ask questions like the ones that Paul actually anticipates, which are like, so do works mean anything at all? What's their value? What's the function of the law? These are good, worthwhile questions. And of course, these explanations aren't nearly so pat and simple. It's kind of like what Peter says in um, chapter three of his second letter. I, I always like the first sentence. It's, he, I, I almost get the impression he's irritated with Paul. He's like, he writes the same way in all his letters. Like, you know, he's got to field all these questions, speaking of these matters, and his letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. So there's a danger in oversimplifying Paul's teaching, apparently. So if, for example, we teach, we, sorry, we try to take into account the full range of biblical instruction on any one subject, whatever it is, it's not uncommon to run into passages that are at odds with each other. I'm sure we've all run into that. When this happens, what we do is, of course, we work hard to harmonize them using tools like hermeneutics uh, to examine things like the original meaning of the words, the original context, and the audience that's being addressed, and so on. So if we're gonna apply this to <clears throat> 320, the very strong statement that therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law, a lot of times this is compared with verse seven in chapter two, which says to those by, who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. Those obviously sound like very different statements. So last week I, I did spend some time discussing the word righteousness and what righteousness means throughout the Bible, and that it is certainly grounded in God as the source of all righteousness, but that our participation in righteous deeds is absolutely the expectation. So in that sense of righteousness, it is definitely both one and the other. But still, you have to admit in the first statement, Paul argues that no matter what, every person's deeds are going to come up short, and uh, you, um, how do I say that? whether they have the advantage of the law or not, they will come up short and is insufficient to gain salvation. 
So in chapter two, Paul is in the middle, you may remember, of making a specific point. And while many theories have been suggested to reconcile these verses, I'm just going to go with the simple idea that is easy to understand, that a core doctrine of scripture that is irrefutable, that uh, works play a vital role in the life of a believer, even though Paul does certainly go on to show that no one can actually be persistent enough in them to the degree necessary for salvation, that is understood. That doesn't mean that both aren't important doctrines. And a classic example of this would be in James. It's pretty notorious, James 2.24 especially. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. So to be clear, because this can be a little confusing if you haven't gone through a, a, even a brief study on this, if Paul wrote something like, man is justified by faith and works mean nothing, and then James says, no, man is justified by works and faith means nothing, then we'd have a very serious problem on our hands that probably couldn't be reconciled. But of course, that is not the case here. If we take the time, again, like I said, to study the meaning, the context, the audience that's in mind here, there's actually nothing here to cause us to accept Paul's teaching over James or vice versa. In fact, it would be much better to think of it as one teaching complementing the other, and it gives us a much more full understanding of and an accurate meaning of faith. Reading James, it's clear that he's discussing how a believer lives out her faith once she's accepted Christ's gifts of salvation. And if her faith, her trusting belief, is actually genuine, then it will be lived out in her life, which is the whole point of the passage. It's, not, it's easy to see that if you read the book of James. Works are key evidence of righteousness and can't be dismissed as either irrelevant or even a little bit unimportant. So it might be more accurate to say that this, this ends up being a perceived dilemma that's actually not there when the whole counsel of scripture is taken into account. It's like the Greg Kokel saying that you don't just read a Bible verse. That's a dangerous thing to do. Paul's teaching on faith apart from works as it applies to justification is a very important teaching, but to then, I guess, somehow think that this is the only doctrine that matters or that there's no other doctrine that informs this would dismiss, for example, sanctification entirely, which is exactly what we looked at last week, which we'll, we'll move on to very briefly. In verse 1, because it recaps that whole section pretty well, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And I had used this expression that a lot of the words in this whole section have this already, but not yet tension. We have peace, uh, we have hope, we have access to God. And so the idea is it's experienced now, but only in part, yet to be fulfilled. And this is all a reality based on a past act. And that is a very, very important idea. And not only that, but the confidence that in trouble, hard times, like real actual hard times, believers are enabled to persevere and even to the point of actually transforming their character in that way they can work for us. And all of this, of course, is due to God's love for his people. This is evidenced in Christ's work. It's evidenced in the Holy, pouring out of the Holy Spirit, as Paul talks about. And then he closes this section that I want to kind of summarize again because it's so great, giving us what I would call a really clear perspective on how complete our assurance is. <clears throat> if, I'm going to read what I said last week because it's, it's a lot of words. If when we were still sinners, when we were still God's enemies, he acted to justify us by Christ's death, which is almost unthinkable, then, how, then now that we've been welcomed in and accepted as righteous, he will certainly not fail to save us from God's wrath 
in the final judgment. Again, so the idea is this, this um, if the more improbable thing has happened, then how much more likely is it just so easy to believe the more probable? So this is the wonderful, really almost inconceivable basis on how we understand sanctification and everything that we hope for. So, it, and, and in this case, it would be a good thing to say that we are not just saved, but Paul says we are being saved. Okay, so for today, um, the last half of chapter 5. Paul compares the work of Adam as the representative of sinful humanity with the work of Christ <clears throat> on behalf of sinful humanity, as you'll see when we look at the passage in a second. And what you'll notice is this is a natural enough, I think, there's a lot of debate over this, but I think it's a natural enough continuation on the passage that we just reviewed. Remember, verses 1 through 11 argue for the certainty of a believer's hope secured in the blood of Christ. And the thing that comes up here is that if anything has the ability to nullify that hope, obviously it would be death. So the answer is alluded to just a couple verses earlier in verse 10. For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? And this is the theme that Paul's going to continue on here. <clears throat> Before we get into reading this passage, I wanted just to... Um, uh, Matthew Henry wrote a really good summary, I think, of this passage. He says, The design of what follows is plain. It's to elevate our view of what Christ has procured for us, by comparing them with the evil which followed upon the fall of our first father, Adam, obviously. And showing that these blessings are not, not only extend to the removal of these evils, but far beyond. So we'll read here. <clears throat> Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way sin came to all men because all sinned, for before the law was given, sin was in the world, but sin is not taken into account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass, for if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man Jesus Christ overflow to the many. Again, the gift of God is not like the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through di the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man the many will be made righteous. The law was added so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through the righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. I left my water bottle over here. That was a lot of reading. Sorry. So, one thing I found right away, like I thought originally, <clears throat> um, this was read to the congregation of the church in Rome. 
like no visual aids, and this guy reads, you know, I don't know whoever's reading it, and I would imagine after even a passage like this, somebody would be like putting their hand up, be like, could you read that again? Because that was a lot of the same words, and I, like, I get the idea of what you're saying, but you mentioned something about the law there, and it, it could just be very confusing, I think. What happens, to be very convenient, is Paul has what are called asides. He, may, he sort of gets off track because he wants to address two things as he goes along in the argument. In verses 13 and 14, he has his first aside explaining how the law affects how we think of sin, and if someone's not actually breaking a command, is that really a sin, and that sort of thing. And then the whole next three verses after that is a slightly different aside where he focuses on the gift and the trespass and what's the difference. And he doesn't really get back on track till verse 18. So this whole passage is basically summarized by these two half verses. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through the one man and death through sin, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. So that's the sermon. We, I can, we can just say this and I can be done, right? That's, that's really what he's saying, and it's very clear that he's making three points here. First one is the universality of sin to all mankind, and then he talks about the disastrous results that came in death and that death is inevitable. And then lastly, of course, the comparison of the man to Jesus and how life is available through him and how it's superior. I mean, that, that's just very clearly seen in that. So this is what Albert Barnes, he's an American theologian who was born in Rome, so I f thought maybe that he just deserved a place here today. Um, <clears throat> he has interesting things to say about this passage. He says, this whole passage has been regarded as one of the most difficult parts of the New Testament. The meaning of the passage in its general bearing is not difficult, and probably the whole passage would have been found far less difficult if it had not been attached to a philosophical theory on the subject of man's sin, and if a strenuous and indefatigable, Nate helped him write this apparently, effort had not been made to prove that it teaches what it was never designed to teach. The plain and obvious design of the passage is this, to show one of the benefits of the doctrine of justification by faith. So you may remember from Guy's sermons back in July that uh, this is one of the main passages used to try to build a doctrine of original sin. But what we're doing today is we're coming to this passage with no particular agenda, and so it's pretty natural to ask the question, to what extent is Paul actually trying to formulate a doctrine on original sin here at all? Now, whether or not you agree with Barnes's rather strongly worded statement, at very least we can understand the danger in overlooking the obvious points being made here and getting lost in the weeds on other things. Even the seemingly modest proposal that, as we hear a lot, all humans are born into a state of sinfulness can be interpreted a lot of different ways and whether we all carry Adam's imputed guilt on us is a completely matter, a different matter altogether. So I'm going to leave that teaching in guys' capable hands and it is available for review. Uh, in his first part, he kind of went over the history of it and then sort of boxed in the orthodox positions in his second part. And as I went over it a second time, I, I found it very helpful. Today, as we examine these verses, we're going to basically try not to lose sight of what Paul definitely and undoubtedly wanted to communicate. So the NIV's heading, Death Through Adam, Life Through Christ, is pretty well spot on for what <clears throat> he's trying to communicate here. Verse 12, which is actually where we have to spend kind of most of our time, although we'll be done, I think, in a, in a reasonable amount of time this morning, 
<clears throat> Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sinned. Well, of course, the phrase sin entered the world, it's actually pretty interesting. World here is referring to the realm of mankind, okay, or the world of men, not the planet Earth per se, right? But the point is, all the, a lot of the language in this passage is very, very relational, even though it is highly theological, and I think that's a really easy thing to miss. So sin entered among the world of men through one man. Well, of course, you'll notice... Paul obviously has Adam in mind and mentions him later, but he hasn't mentioned him by name yet. And in fact, there in this passage, there is a lot of what I would call anonymous language. The people are not necessarily identified. Even some of the events are not necessarily identified, as we see in verse 19, which is obviously later in our passage. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. Right? So the, the details here are removed, and it certainly, at least to me, helps make the comparison much more obvious. As far as the nature of the comparison, Adam and Christ, it's worth noting, aren't here as being vaunted as examples for us to follow, but they're actually just representative individuals. In other words, there's no exhortation to, hey, don't follow Adam, do follow Christ. There's no appeal to faith here or belief because Paul's already done that uh, in the first four chapters. But having said that, of course, we do have every reason to believe that Paul thought, you know, just in the same way that Jesus was a real person, Paul did appear to believe that Adam was also real in history. So the unmistakable point here is clearly the impact and the effect each man had and how completely and profoundly different they are. We just can't miss that. <clears throat> and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all men. So I don't know about you, I find this kind of a, it's just a very disturbing, a disturbing passage. Um, and it actually reminded me of a quote from Paralandra. This is, is C.S. Lewis's, uh, I always want to say sci-fi. <clears throat> it's not a sci-fi trilogy. What? Fantasy? Yeah. What, what? Yeah, but it's a different word. Space trilogy. That's what people call it. Okay. Sci-fi. <clears throat> um, and with, unfortunately, don't have the time to explain the context, uh, so if you've read it, this is the second book in the series. Um, it's a great book, and if this piques your interest and you haven't read it, then good, you can understand it better later. <clears throat> and will you teach us death, said the lady to Weston's shape, where it stood above her. Yes, it said. It is for this that I came here, that you may have death in abundance. But you must be very courageous. So it's creepy on a number of levels. Uh, so it, it beats out the, the biblical passage because it's, it's so great. Um, but it's great because it's... What did I say? It's, it's more creepy even than the biblical passage was my point. I'm not saying it's better than the Bible. I'm not... Thank you for at least reacting and not, you know... No, not better than the Bible. I didn't think I had to say that, but yeah, it's not. But, um, but in the way of wording something to show how um, just disturbing it is. What, Wegman, what do you wish? All right, whatever. <clears throat> so I lost my space. 
we commonly, like this, though, use language that portrays sin as a spiritual power and death as the embodiment of evil, as in the case here. Sin entered the world, at the beginning of this passage, is personified like in chapter 3 where Paul had said, all humans are under sin, as though it was a real tyrannical leader. Frank Thielman puts it this way, sin is pictured as an insidious power that once allowed entry multiplies until it dominates, enslaves, and kills everyone. Here the chief agent of sin is death, which advanced to every human being. I also don't think this is better than the Bible, just to be clear. <laughs> I'm not going to live that one down anytime soon. Death is mentioned in this way. This is, a, this is the first time the use of the word death has this fuller meaning. It's used, I think, about five times in this passage, like we read in you know, Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. And in, in this chunk of Romans from five, chapter 5 through 8, it's actually used like 27 times, and then it's not even mentioned once after that, after uh, Paul is done dealing with it. The inevitable result here, obviously, is that sin produced death. Death followed sin just like God said it would, which takes us back just briefly to Genesis chapter 2. I think this is worth briefly recapping in uh, verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat it you shall surely die. And the command not to eat, I had actually forgotten this, was directed at Adam before Eve was created. So there could be a whole sermon on the man not communicating very well with his wife, and that's why we're all where we're at. <laughs> I, probably. I'm, I don't know. There's, there's got to be a good story there, I, I would bet. Um, and, uh, so, and then what wraps this series uh, of wraps this passage up is the series of curses that are again pronounced over Adam in chapter 3. <clears throat> Till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, uh, for you are dust, and to dust you will return, implying man's unnatural death. Um, and then experiencing shame for the first time, the, uh, they were obviously aware they were naked. God slaughtered an animal to provide clothing for Adam and Eve. And we were just going over this in the brink. Uh, that a lot of them, a lot of the kids at that age weren't aware of the foreshadowing of Christ's sacrifice um, through the death of this animal. But in studying this passage, it kind of made me think about the reason behind the killing in that particular time and space. <clears throat> so you can imagine how Adam would have reacted, because this is kind of like the first fruits of death, and that he's cloaked in the skin of an animal that he was supposed to protect. And it's disobedience. It's the fruit of disobedience. So a good question here is, is this death physical or spiritual? And the answer is yes. We can't separate the physical death from the spiritual death here at all. In fact, the Hebrews' understanding was the same. They held that man's death was a deeply spiritual phenomena, and that animals would perish would have been natural, and that man should be doomed to the same fate as an animal was profoundly unnatural. This is a fascinating quote that uh, Martin Heidegger was an existentialist and, and by extension, an atheist. Um, he says, death comes to a man as something for which he was not made. I find it fascinating. He used the word made, by the way. Uh, as an offense, cutting short and reducing the meaninglessness <clears throat> to meaninglessness, all that is highest and distinctive about him. So I think it, it kind of rubs everyone the wrong way. It's unnatural, it's evil, it's bad, and it doesn't matter if you believe in God. 
you will have the same position pretty much uniformly across the board. In this way, <clears throat> death came to all men because all sinned. Okay, so very, very quickly, um, you may remember a uh, guy had gone over how Augustine had basically mishandled this interpretation because of the version of the Latin Vulgate that he was using that uses the phrase, death passed upon all men in whom all have sin, <clears throat> implying Adam. So if this wording is intentional, it could have implied that a universality, uh, sorry, a universally inherited sin was transferred from Adam to everyone else, his, as his guilt being applied to all of his descendants, not by their actions, but simply by existing and, and this wording making it strong enough to actually build a church doctrine around it. But that has been, of course, found to be inaccurate. <clears throat> Most modern translations see the Greek as a, basically a conjunction with a range of possibilities. By far the most uh, popular is the one the NIV uses, the word because, so it reads all men died because all men sinned. So this leads to the conclusion that death's universal because sin is universal. But this phrase being what it is, this is not conclusive. There are other alternatives, valid alternatives. So the phrase could read something like, death, death came to all men with the result that all sinned. So what this does is this reverses the cause and effect relationship here. Paul would no longer be saying all men died because all men sinned. He'd be saying all men sinned because all men died, explaining why sin is universal, that people sin because all people died spiritually as a result of Adam's disobedience, which would also, again, have uh, fit current Jewish thought at the time of Paul's writing on sin and death. In either case, lots and lots and lots of time and ink has been spent on this topic, so I'm going to leave it there. But what we tend to find is that the uh, scholar working on this chooses the translation that agrees with his position on sin, and that seems to be pretty much true across the board. But both are valid possibilities, apparently. His first aside here, which is an important one, um, in this digression, Paul returns to something he said in chapter 4. He said, uh, where there is no law, there's no transgression. And of course, that could be a wildly confusing statement. Deanna and I were actually just talking about a related passage like this last night. So Paul attempts to answer this question as to how those who've never had the law can also be guilty of sin. I'm just going to read this one more time in uh, 13 and 14. For before the law was given, sin was in the world. But sin is not taken into account when there's no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. So the two words I have highlighted here, we have uh, sin, hamartia, or sha, I'm not sure, I don't, I'm not a huge Greek guy, but we'll say hamartia, is that right? Hamartia. Hamartia, there you go, sounds Hispanic. Um, missing the mark. That's what sin means in summary. Having gone wrong, missed the mark, being off-centered. It's the objective condition of which death is the end, whether a person is fully aware of wrongdoing or not. Whereas we have what it means to break a command or a transgression, parabasis is a different word, meaning to intentionally cross the line. Like you can think of transgression, right? To uh, cross a known boundary. That's trespassing, right? Recognize, there's a recognized norm that you're defying, and so it's an intentional thing. 
Sin was in the world since the garden, but it wasn't taken into account in the sense of judgment of deeds, as Paul already discussed way back in chapter 3, where he said, all who sin apart from the law will perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law, because God is just. But then he says, nevertheless, death reigned also from the time of Adam to the time of Moses. So just like in chapters 1 and 2, the condition of sin and wrath is universal to Jew and Gentile, whether people have the law or they don't. So the condition of death and sin is universal without discrimination. We all know this. This means that the distinction produced by the law is irrelevant as far as death is concerned, but imposing the law only makes a difference to the degree of guilt that one has. Though Adam and Eve broke the first command, there could be, strictly speaking, no more laws broken until the law was introduced. But his point is, but in the interval between Adam and Moses, before the institution of the law, death prevailed nonetheless, and this served as absolute proof that sin was in the world anyway. And Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. That's an interesting phrase. Uh, it reminds me, <clears throat> well, first of all, the comparison between Adam and Jesus, there's more differences than there are similarities, so comparison is kind of an interesting word. Uh, and it also makes me think of the line in Hark the Herald Angels Sing, where we sing, second Adam from above, reinstate us in thy love. Uh, Jesus is sometimes called the second or last Adam, which basically means he is the one who's given the human race a new beginning in the same way that Adam had, except, of course, only better. And then <clears throat> Paul uh, returns to his comparison in more detail, the gift and the trespass. I'm not going to read it again this time, but I highlighted a couple things I wanted to talk about. First of all, you see the phrase, how much more, a couple times. And then the first time you read it, it's not really clear what he's saying is how much more. If it's, uh, if many die by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the one man overflow to the many. So how much more? Is this, like, is this a quantifying thing, like he's going to save more people than Adam has doomed to death? What, what is exactly going on here? But he explains it better, uh, or I should say more, as the passage continues. We see the one gift, and this is the point of this whole thing here, I think, the one gift following many trespasses. As Wendell has spoken of often, one perfect man could in theory, possibly die for in the place of one imperfect man. But in the gift, we have one man's sacrifice, not only able to pardon the many sins of one man, but able to pardon, <coughs> who is, by the way, transgressed against an infinite God, but offers to pardon the many sins of all men and women. This can only be the work of an infinite and perfect and loving God. And there's another contrast to the law, actually, here. Since God's gracious action started with innumerable offenses, that's what he had to deal with when, when uh, he came upon the scene. If we think of turn, in terms of an equitable justice, more wrath, if anything, should have been imposed instead, which makes the verdict of acquittal um, all the more meaningful. And that is, of course, uh, fantastic. As we've seen, Paul then returns to his main point, as we've already read in verses 18 and 19. 
First question is, how are we to compare? We were, Deanna and I were talking about this also because it's just, it's kind of fascinating. I think we overlook these things sometimes, if, especially if we're used to reading the Bible. How are we to compare the condemnation for all men, which we usually take literally as that's the default position for every man and woman? They're condemned, unless, of course, they're saved. And when we talk about life for all men, we tend to think of that as a mere potentiality that, of course, may or may not happen. But it fits really well within Paul's gospel that both condemnation leading to death and justification leading to life are real possibilities for all people. And I feel like he goes over that again and again and is very much wanting to make that point. What's easy to forget, like I said before, doctrine, you get into doctrine, but doctrine affects real people. In verse 19, disobedience is such a relatable word, right? Like we can all relate to this. So Paul, I think, goes on to remind us, again, that theology is completely relational and we can all relate to this information. In verse 20, the law was added so the trespass might increase, <clears throat> which is, I think, the, at least the first time you read it, that's got to come across as a really strange saying. The law was added so the trespass might increase, like God intentionally made it worse. Like, is that, is that what that means? <clears throat> well, Perhaps helpful, back in chapter 3, you may remember, Paul said, through the law comes knowledge of sin. And that is certainly his point here. The trespass increases because we're held more accountable and we have more knowledge. The law brings elevated accountability, which causes sin to be considered differently or counted differently. So I modified this to our benefit. With great knowledge comes great responsibility. I couldn't find a slide that didn't have Spider-Man in it, so I had just changed it. And <clears throat> by the way, that was, that was Voltaire originally. That was not, uh, I think Stanley stole it off of him. But I, I love that idea that when you have knowledge, you, have, you are actually held responsible for it. And that is a key um, that is a key component, as you'll see, all the way throughout Romans. And it's a reminder for us, too, that have the gospel, that we're all the more responsible. So, <clears throat> that the trespass might increase. This is uh, his, uh, I'm sorry. So that the trespass might increase or intensify evil. It doesn't sound like a good thing at first, and that is true if it wasn't for the overwhelming response of God under the new covenant, God's grace has come to enhance and multiply the benefit, right? The new overrides the old and the latter overrides the former. It's better in every way. And if this thought seems somewhat incomplete, that's because Paul is gonna come back and talk about this in chapter seven. This is the summary statement of everything that basically Paul has covered, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. In a um, closing summary, these are all the things he compares in this paragraph, <clears throat> and I think it's worth mentioning, it isn't just a comparison of Adam messed up and God did it right, but everything that you see here on the right column is actually qualitatively better. Christ is superior to Adam and grace by its very function is better than sin because everything on the left is just a ruined form of everything that's good that is real on the right. So in chapter 5, Paul's painted a picture of how complete our assurance is in Christ. If the greatest and final enemy death 
has been overcome, then what else do we have to worry about? The hope of believers is not dashed by sin or death, and Jesus has conquered both. Amen? Proving his impact on history is greater than Adam's. Boy, there's just so much um, rich and powerful material that we've been working through in this letter. And uh, David, I very much appreciate the careful and uh, nuanced way in which you've worked us through the text. I encourage you all as you uh, go out from here to spend some time just reflecting on what we've learned in this part and the part prior as well. And, uh, and then I, I might challenge you to go back and listen to it again uh, and listen to the parts that came before and maybe crack your Bible open and, and read along. You know, the letter to the Romans can sometimes be tricky to navigate, but what David's been providing us steadily now over the, the years, I guess, has been uh, just so much useful information and also these lines that we can follow as we read through the text. There's just a lot there to, to unpack and to process. Thank you, David. Um, as we go out from here this morning, let's also double down on the encouragement that David's provided us with and that Paul provided us with in this text uh, to, to first and foremost to put on an attitude of thankfulness, one that reflects on and appreciates the many benefits and privileges and blessings that we, uh, that we have received, that we enjoy by having been, 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 um, by having been declared righteous by God through our faith in Christ. There's so much there to be thankful for. And so if you haven't uh, already taking the time today, I encourage you to stop and to give thanks that there is no longer enmity but peace between you and God, and that we get to stand firmly in the grace that He has given us today, tomorrow, and in the days after. Let's stand together. Reading from 2 Thessalonians 3.16. Now may the Lord of peace Himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with all of you. Go in Christ and greet each other in love.